Hey, we are in week two of our series that we're calling, I Believe in Miracles. We basically started off with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And I just want to grab on to the recap and reread those verses here where it says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now we're talking about believing in miracles because I believe in miracles. My introduction to faith was through miracles, very important in my faith formation. But here we see that Jews demand signs, that's the miracles, the supernatural, and Greeks look for wisdom. Both of these are good. Both of these are important. The spiritual and the intellectual are both very important, but we need to make sure that our primary understanding is Christ crucified. This is the message that Paul preached. He also preached the power of God. He also preached wisdom to the mature, but he preached Christ crucified. And what that means is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's Christ crucified. The Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, came as a divine sacrifice to redeem those who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that they could be bought back from the consequences of sin and brought into the family of God. This is Christ crucified. And when we get that deep into our hearts, we understand the love God has for us, the love God has for others. Then we can respond to that love by loving God back and by loving other people is so important. But when handled properly, the deep spiritual and the deep intellectual are beautiful things. Now you can go your whole Christian life without seeing a miracle and without even being interested in theology. You just follow the things of God. Hallelujah. You're doing great. But when you have your heart in the right place, you can grab hold of the supernatural. You can grab hold of the intellectual and have it go the right way. Have it be good. Last time we talked about the crippled beggar from Acts chapter 3. And the greatest miracle is a new lease on life. That's true for us today too. We can be free from addiction, free from the identity lies. We can be set free and brought into new life in Christ and grab hold of it. That's the greatest miracle. Today... We're going to go Old Testament. We're going to look in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, and we're going to talk about Saul, King Saul being among the prophets. Part two of I Believe in Miracles is a great miracle from the Old Testament. Of course, there's many, many, many Old Testament miracles, and through this series, we're only going to be able to pick a few. But this one, I really wanted to hit because the first time I read it, I was just astonished. It was an incredible miracle. And a lot of people don't talk about it. So I want to deal with this because there's such an important lesson to be learned here. So we'll start with 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 28 and 29, that establishes the relationship between King Saul and David. This is the David from David and Goliath. He's going to become the king of Israel. And Saul is the current king of Israel. He's the one who lent his armor to David to go kill Goliath with. But David was like, nah, I can't wear this. I'm going to go with the sling and the stone. So these two guys, what was their relationship like? We get the best taste of it here in 1 Samuel 18, 28 and 29, where it says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, that is Saul's daughter, loves David. Saul became still more afraid of him 
and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So Saul was jealous of David because David was doing bigger, better things. People were attracted to David. Saul's own daughter marries David. So Saul is feeling insecure about his position as king because he sees all the things David can do and all the people that love David. And so he is jealous and threatened and becomes an enemy of David. That's pretty significant. And we jump into chapter 19, verse 8. David and Saul's relationship was kind of smoothed over and then it went bad again. We pick that up here in verse 8 of chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. Once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul is not happy with David. He's threatened. All of a sudden, he's just like, I got to kill that guy. Jams the spear into the wall. David apparently makes a little move and clang, the spear hits the wall. And that night, he makes good his escape. Yeah, I would too. Let's keep going. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent men to capture David, Michael said, He is ill. Then Saul sent men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was an idol in the bed and the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is at Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's just talk about this for a little bit. If you're unfamiliar with this particular situation, 
You know, Saul's very jealous of David. He's trying to kill him. And you see here, you know, we read earlier, an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul. Maybe I should just talk about that for a second. This seems to be kind of in line with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There is a type of divine judgment where God kind of pushes you. And the bottom line with that is stay honest and full of faith towards God, and he will reveal truth to you rather than hide things from you. But this could be a reference to a judgment against Saul from God, similar to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So that's going on. Saul's already got his problems with David. And so he sends three separate groups of people to go kill David. The first group shows up and they're having themselves a prayer meeting. You know, I mean, they're having some church. They're prophesying and the the spirit of God is there and it's just powerful, powerful stuff. So the group that came to the meeting to capture David, they all just get caught up in the spirit and they're just prophesying and caught up in the moment. And so they don't capture David. This apparently took a lot of time and it kept going because then Saul sends a second group. He hears about it, sends a second group. Now, they didn't have cell phones. This would have taken probably a couple days, right? I, you know, it would have taken some time. Saul hears that the first group he sent, you know, didn't do the job. So he sends another group. They show up. They get caught up in the spirit. They're having themselves some church. They're prophesying and they're just getting all Pentecostal back in, uh, in Old Testament times. And Saul, undeterred, he sends a third group. He's like, oh, these people, you know, and the third group gets caught up in the spirit and they start prophesying. This happens three times. And then Saul, King Saul is finally like, you know what? This is ridiculous. If you want to get a job done right, you got to do it yourself. So he goes. And Saul himself, with the evil spirit from the Lord, all the jealousy and anger and fear, and he just wants to destroy David because of the threat that David brings to his kingship and all this. And he gets caught up in it all day, all night. You know, he takes his kingly robes off. I don't think he was like naked, naked. I think he, you know, was unrobed of his kingly garments. And he's worshiping God and prophesying all day and all night. Like, this is amazing. This is just amazing. What just happened? Fantastic account of God doing an amazing miracle in the Old Testament. I just love this one. First of all, what are we going to talk about today? First of all, I just want to say, what a crazy time to be alive, where you can be playing your instrument, making the king happy, and then all of a sudden, the spear hits the wall and you're like, whoop, you know, like, I better get out of here. There was lots and lots of killing back then. It was a time of almost anarchy. It was, it was might makes right back then. And it was a bad, scary time. And it reminds me of Titus chapter three, verse three. If we're going to pull it into New Testament times and into our own personal lives, you know, this was a time of incredible warfare and strife and death. And I mean, people were killed and there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. It was just a big mess. And Titus 3.3 says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. To me, that verse kind of explains the world that Saul and David lived in. 
It was this malice and envy and people being hated and hating one another just kind of mayhem. You know, it was a, it was a big mess. But I want to look at the context of this verse and let's read Titus 3, 1 through 7 and try to get a picture of it and how it all works out. So remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Those seven verses to me, I think, are just amazingly powerful. We see two very different pictures of the human experience in verses one and two and verse three. One and two, you know, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Make sure that there's the rule of law. Uh, Remind them to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. This is not the world that King Saul and David lived in, where people can get pinned to the wall with a spear and nobody can do anything about it. Instead, they lived in that verse three, you know, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. These two different pictures of what life can be like are such stark contrasts. And here in Titus, we see that there's the harsh, you know, malice, envy, hate world, but Christ comes and changes us and brings us into a different world. And the the way that that's described in verses four through seven are just so important. If this is something you want to get a deeper understanding of, I encourage you to read Titus three, one through seven, several times and try to get it to sink into your spirit. But we see, you know, the, the truths here that are brought out, God intervened. You know, there was this malice, envy, hate, just yuck, disobedience, all that stuff. God intervened, not because the people were righteous. He doesn't intervene in our life because of our righteousness, but because of his kindness and mercy. And he wants to help us. He wants to save us from that. And he does that through the washing and rebirth, you know, by the Holy Spirit through Christ. And then we get to be heirs of eternal life and live in the hope that comes with that. Then we get to live that first part of what we read. Subject to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, peaceable and considerate, always to be gentle toward everyone. A whole different way of being. Just amazing. And the gospel message is that you can go from what was described in verse 3, Because there's lots of people in today's world that live in the middle of that, being hated and hating one another, just in the midst of a strife-filled, yucky life. But we can, through Christ, 
be transformed from living in that world to a new life. And we can also do this as a group. I'll talk about this in a little bit. This isn't just about you, but this is about society in general. You can go from envy and strife and hate into kindness and gentleness and love. That can happen with you, but it's so much more powerful when it happens in a group setting or for a whole nation. It's so much more powerful. So what are the lessons we learn from this amazing story of Saul sending people to capture David so David can be killed and they get caught up in the revival meeting? (laughs) Three different groups and then Saul himself. What do we learn from this? First lesson, the spiritual climate is very important. What happened to the people who went to Ramah with bad intent? They got caught up in the spiritual climate. They got caught up in the moment. They got caught up in the goodness of God. And they were proclaiming and prophesying the good things of God. The spiritual climate is very important. I remember one time years ago, I was pastoring the first church that I planted over 20 years ago. And I was working full time. And I just, you know, after a few years, I started to get pretty burned out. Really, 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 really tired. I was so busy through the week that I didn't do any sermon prep during the week. I just did that on Sunday morning. I'd get up at four and I'd pray and ask God to show me something. And then I'd write some notes and have church Sunday morning. And, you know, that was my process week after week because I didn't have any other time to do that. One week, I was just so drained. I had nothing. And I prayed and I prayed for all the individuals attending church and the community. And and usually when I did that, God would show me something and I'd have a a sermon I could put together. And and I just had nothing. And I kept praying and and just got nothing. And now, you know, time has passed and it's six o'clock, seven o'clock. It's time to go to the church and get some things prepared. And and I'm praying and asking God, you got to show me something. I got nothing. And it came to be time for church to start, and I didn't have anything. I didn't have a scripture to read, I, and I was so tired and burned out and drained, I didn't even care. You know, it was like, well, whatever, I don't know what to do. And I thought, well, should I go home or should I go to church? Um, and I thought, well, whatever, I'll just go to church. Because, I mean, going home, I, I don't want to do that. But I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't even have a sermon. I don't even have the strength to try to find one. I'm just burnt out. And I showed up for church, and... The people, you know, we had a small group, maybe 25, 30 people. The people there were happy and excited and seeking the Lord and expecting something good to happen. And that energy gave me some strength. And I don't remember what I preached on, but I I read some scripture and talked about it. And we had some prayer and we had ourselves some church and it actually worked. And we had a nice church service. And I remember thinking, I didn't do any of that. Like I didn't bring anything to the table that day. It was just the congregation, just the people who were there, brought the spiritual energy, brought the enthusiasm, you know, brought the strength to be able to have a good church service. And we had a good church service. And I learned that, man, the spiritual climate, the things that the congregation brings are hugely important because I knew I brought nothing. That day, I brought nothing to the table except I just showed up. So that was a huge lesson that I learned that, The spiritual climate 
is hugely important. You know, ministry can be lonely. There can be a lot of rejection. But I tell you what, not that day. That day I showed up and everybody else picked me up and it all worked out. That day I realized it's not all up to me. It's not all up to me. In fact, there's a piece of the puzzle that's up to me, but it's not all up to me. All kinds of stuff that everybody brings to the table. Uh, I have this chain link. I was out walking in the woods with a friend of mine. He found a chain link while we were just walking. I'm like, wow, look at that. It must have been from logging, you know, it broke off or something. And, and then I found one. And I don't know if this is any kind of sign from God, but it just, to me, it meant his, his link in the chain. I'm my link in the chain. Don't try to be more than that. I'll do my part. Everybody else has to do their part. And that's how the kingdom of God works. That leads into our second lesson for today. So the first one, the spiritual climate is very important. Second lesson, you, yes, you individually, you are an important part of the spiritual climate. So if, you know, worship leaders, preachers, they understand that if the congregation doesn't want to go, there's not much you can do about it. But if they're ready to go, then you don't really even have to do much. You don't really have to make it happen. It happens on its own. You know, I remember years ago, first trip I did to Jamaica, missions trip, we were doing some church services and things like that. And, and we did a Sunday night kind of worship and prayer night. And, I, you know, I, I was leading on the guitar and sang a song. And, and uh, it was a new one that we were teaching them. And we did the you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, and, and then we're going to be done with the song. And we ended the song, but the congregation went back into the bridge and just kept going. And we're like, oop. And so, <laughs> so then we started playing again and catching up with them. And it was amazing because I tell you what, like for worship leaders, when the congregation just goes and all you have to do is kind of guide. And in this case, they went past and I had to catch up with them. Like it was just beautiful. There was just so much uh, spirit of worship in the room that it just went. And it was just glorious. It was so much fun. And the spiritual climate is very important. And each one of them that night brought something to the table, brought some good spirit of worship. And we just had a great time worshiping the Lord. And you might be thinking, well, I wish my church was like that, but my church is all quiet and subdued and they don't care. You You bring a spirit of worship. You bring friendliness to your church. You understand you are an important part of the spiritual climate. Don't just look and say, yeah, I wish our church was more friendly. Be the more friendly one. Bring that to the climate. You are an important part of the spiritual climate of your church. Also of your family, of your home, your workplace, your school, your team, your friend group. Whoever it is, you are an important part of the spiritual climate in all of those areas. So the question is, what are you bringing to the spiritual climate? Because there's good spiritual climate and there's bad spiritual climate. There was that spiritual climate of worship in Jamaica. There was that spiritual climate of enthusiasm and expectation on that Sunday when I just had nothing and 
I benefited from that. But I've been in other situations where there's been a negative spiritual climate and you've got to fight against that. And it can be very, very difficult. You know, what are you bringing into the spiritual climate? Is it strife or anger or pride or addiction, lust, pornography, fear of conspiracies, selfishness and ignorance? You know, what are you bringing or are you bringing the fruits of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things. What are you bringing? I just want to say for the fathers out there, understand you are called to be the spiritual head of the home, the spiritual leader. What that means is that the spiritual climate of your home and your family is your responsibility. It doesn't mean you get to be a jerk and nobody can say anything about it. That's a horrible, false understanding of what the Bible teaches about the responsibility of fathers. The spiritual climate of your home, your family is your responsibility. Bring good things into the spiritual climate. Grow the spiritual climate. Some churches don't have men's meetings. Let me tell you, men's meeting is Sunday morning. That's when men's meeting is. Show up on Sunday morning because you're the man of the house. You are the one who is encouraging and strengthening the spiritual climate. So you bring something good to the spiritual climate. And this even can apply to society as a whole. There's a spiritual climate over not just churches or families, but also towns and and cities and states and nations through the world. There's a spiritual climate. And God's plan isn't just to change individuals, but to change nations. Let me just paint a picture here for just a second. God doesn't just want you to love your neighbor. That's not why Jesus said that was the second most important commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. The reason Jesus said that was that God wants all of us to live in a world where everyone looks out for everyone else. Where when you leave your home, you're always among friends. You're always among people who are going to give you a hand if you need it, give you an encouraging word. That's what God wants to see happen is a world where everyone is looking out for everyone else. What a world that would be. God wants the spiritual climate to be wonderful for everyone to apply to all. Third lesson. This one isn't as much fun, but the battle continued after Ramah. So be prepared to last. Saul And David didn't live happily ever after. You know, Saul had his day and night of prophesying before the Lord and caught up in the spirit in the moment. And then after that, they went back to the way it was before. They went back to the Titus 3.3, malice and anger and hating one another stuff. They, They went right back to that. And there was lots of hurt and pain and unnecessary death that occurred after this event at Ramah. And it's a great challenge to accept the responsibility to bring a positive spiritual climate with you wherever you go, because you can get worn down. You can get tired. You can become jaded. Some people become, some Christians become resigned to living a double life. You know, they know they're supposed to be like this, but they aren't. So They just live a double life. They're not bringing the right spiritual climate. Some people just give up. And there's no promise in the Bible that we're going to get to experience other people 
strengthening and encouraging us all the time. It's a blessing when we can find ourselves in a church community where we encourage and strengthen one another. It's a blessing if you have a family that encourages and strengthens you and there's a good spiritual climate in the family. That's an incredible blessing, but there is no promise in the scripture that that's how it's going to work. It didn't work that way in Saul and David's life. The spiritual climate was incredible and amazing and people got caught up in the moment and were prophesying and speaking the praises of God. And then it went back to strife and malice and anger and hate and death. And we can have those times of great moments in the Lord. But a lot of times we have to be swimming upstream. We've got to be doing the battle in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I want to go to Matthew chapter 24 and just talk a little bit about what we need to be prepared to do, how we need to be prepared to last. So Matthew 24, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. This is Jesus talking about the times we're in today. He's talking about the the end times, the last times. I don't know exactly where we are in that, but this is 2,000 years ago. So here we go. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus here, he's talking about going from that day to the day that he returns, the end of the age. And From what I understand, we may be 10 to 15 years out from having the Bible translated into every known language. So we could be getting close to the actual end times. But the point I want to make is that Jesus wasn't saying, and everything's going to keep getting better and better until the end comes when everything is perfect. That's not the picture. It's that things are going to be difficult. We can have pockets of time and and groups that are working well, but And the the picture is that it's going to be hard. If you want to bring a positive spiritual climate to your family, to your church, to your city, to your nation, a lot of times you're going to be the countercultural person. You're going to be the one swimming upstream. So you need to be prepared to last, ready for the long haul. Now, it's a blessing again to be in a a church community where we encourage and strengthen each other to be on a team where you encourage and strengthen each other, a workplace where you encourage and strengthen each other. Hallelujah. That's good stuff. But we need to be prepared to last bringing 
a good spiritual climate, bringing faith, bringing hope, bringing love, bringing a trust in Jesus into a world that just isn't going that direction. So let's wrap this up. Three lessons we learned from this amazing miracle of the three groups coming to capture David and Saul himself getting caught up in the spirit and prophesying. Three lessons we learned. Lesson number one, the spiritual climate is very important. Lesson number two, you, yes, you individually, you personally are an important part of the spiritual climate of your church, your home, your workplace, your city, whatever it might be. And then lesson number three is that the battle continued after Ramah, so we need to be prepared to last. It's the same with us. You might be caught up in a beautiful spiritual climate with the people that are around you, but we've got to be able to be countercultural and bring faith and hope and love into this world when it's not there. So the great thing about the miracle here is that you can affect other people by bringing in the right spiritual climate. You can have an impact on others. And that's just the best thing about this miracle. And that's something I want to just drive home. You bring the right spiritual climate because that will help other people. It will affect other people, even to the point of King Saul being caught up in the spirit. How much more can we have that happen today? But it's got to be real. This is obviously something you can't fake. You know, you can fake uh, being a good Christian in church. You can fake that. But you can't fake bringing the right spiritual climate. It's impossible to fake. It's, it's your heart that matters. Let me read from Galatians 6, 7 through 10 as we finish this up. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So here, you know, God can't be mocked. You reap what you sow. So we want to sow good spiritual seed. We want to sow faith. We want to sow hope. We want to sow love. We want to sow the things of the spirit. We want to sow an encouraging word. We want to sow good spiritual things. And that means we have to have good spiritual things in us in the first place. Not grow weary and give up and do good to all people, especially to the family of believers. So I want to pray for us to sow good seed, to not grow weary, and then to endeavor to do good to all people. So let's pray along those lines. So Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing situation that happened so many years ago with King Saul and David, and that you showed the power of the spiritual climate in that moment. And Lord, we know that we carry a spiritual climate with us. We have something that we bring to the table, either good or bad, and sometimes a bit of a mix. But Lord, we ask you to cleanse our hearts, to wash out the darkness and that that stuff that was described in Titus 3.3, Lord, wash that out as we put our faith and our trust in you. Lord, forgive us of our sins and, and take the darkness out so that we can receive good things from you and that we can be filled with your good things and bring a good spiritual climate to this world. And Father, help us to be able to persevere 
when people don't understand and they make fun of us and, and they just, all that stuff, Lord, when they oppose, let us continue to be kind. Let us continue to sow good spiritual seed in the midst of that. And Lord, let us be good, do good to all people. And Lord, especially to those who are followers of you, let us encourage each other as we endeavor to serve you and all the more as we see the day approaching. So Father, encourage us, give us strength, fill us with the right things so that we can bring the right spiritual climate everywhere that we go. Bless us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.